Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for tapping to listen to us today. We appreciate it. You know, if you're coming to us from a mobile podcast app, don't forget, we've got a, a full-blown website you can check out that uh, not only can you hear the show on, but of course, we've got show notes and past episodes ready for you to check out as well. So we're at thenexttrack.com, and if you're on Twitter, we're at NextTrackCast. This is episode number 124 of The Next Track. So while I was waiting for you to call me on Skype to start recording, I went over to Apple Music to the For You tab, and I said, what should I check out today just to fill time? And, you know, sometimes you do that. you got nothing to do. You want to put some music on for 10 minutes. And I looked at the Friends Are Listening To section, and I see this Fleetwood Mac record, Rumors Deluxe. Now, we discussed this a couple weeks ago in our episode Bestsellers, since it is such a best-selling record. And I think you said during the episode that almost every song on that was a hit or got airplay. Yeah. And I was looking at the titles, and, you know, I recognize Dreams and Go Your Own Way, but I didn't recognize too many of the other songs. And then, of course, I realized that the first track... Secondhand News, that was a hit. Never Going Back Again was a hit. Don't Stop, yeah, I do recognize that. So I heard most of the songs on this record on FM radio. I don't think I ever owned it. But I didn't know the titles. Anyway, what I found interesting is that I was looking at this record, and here all of a sudden it's got 40 tracks, and it's got live tracks, and it's got early takes, and it's got demos, and it's got instrumentals, and it's got an acoustic duet. And I was thinking how interesting the whole idea of deluxe editions has become. The the way that record companies are mining the last vestiges, the last scraps of tape on the floor of the editing studio to resell these records. Sometimes I think they're a waste of time. I think I complained in one show about deluxe editions of, of, of albums that really didn't have a lot of impact. I mean, sure, they've got a good fan base, and I've always considered those deluxe editions as, here, buy the album again. Here's There's even more stuff that you'd be interested in. I think the average Fleetwood Mac listener is not going to be interested in this deluxe edition. On the other hand, if you're an older Fleetwood Mac person and you're tired of hearing Don't Stop all the time, because it won't stop, <laughs> then maybe a, a, a an album of like songs and like material would be interesting to you. I know it's going to be interesting to archivists in the future. Or completists. Yeah, or total completists, but that's not everybody. That's Most people are getting their Fleetwood Mac fix on the radio or from the two or three CDs they still have in the, uh, in the CD case in the car. So I guess these are fine, but I, I, like a lot of things that are going on with the music industry lately, I've sort of gone, hmm, why not? Why be against it? Sure. Would I like to hear a, a, an obscure live take of some song that maybe Fleetwood Mac recorded in the back of an arena or something? Yeah, that might be fun to hear. It might humanize the music a little bit more. It might give me a little bit more variety. So, sure, I guess. Why not? Well, at a minimum, it, it's likely that most people who listen to Fleetwood Mac, who aren't serious completists, have never heard their live recordings. So, this has the, the, the original album on the first disc, a live set on the second disc, and then all the outtakes, instrumentals, demos, and everything on the third disc. So let's say you do buy this on CD. You've got the first record. Maybe it's been remastered. It's not clear if this version is remastered. This was released in 2013. 
But the second disc is going to be interesting if you like live recordings. Now, you might only play the third record once. How many times do you want to hear a demo of a song that you'd rather hear in the studio version or the live version? You know, it's only the obsessives that do that. But what, what I find interesting is that we've gotten to the point now, and this goes back quite far. It, you, we don't get these deluxe editions of like the last U2 album, but we do get the deluxe editions of the first U2 albums of music that was popular in the 60s and the 70s, maybe the 80s. I don't know what the cutoff is. I guess it depends on the band and who's alive. I guess Nirvana has spawned um, deluxe editions, you know, since they're not together anymore. But it made me realize that I actually buy a number of these. I have a new one right here. It is a deluxe edition of Drudy Combs Without Mercy. It was just released a couple days ago. It has the original album plus a bunch of singles on the first CD. The second CD is another collection of singles, EPs, etc. And then it's got two live performances on the third and fourth CD. Now, Drudy Combs released, I think, just two live recordings back in the day. So this is all new stuff in the sense of the live recordings. And the other stuff is things that are collected that had only been available on singles, EPs, rare things, and, and stuff like that. So it's not, it's not the snippets of tape on the floor of the studio. Yeah. It's more a question of gathering stuff together that you may or may not have had. Yeah, um, the impression I get from a lot of this stuff is that... Um, I just had a thought. It, it seems like they're... They're trying to assemble, like I said earlier, um, this is kind of like the stuff that you know, but it's not exactly like the stuff that you know. And it might be kind of fun to see, you know, a previous version or a later version than the version of the song that you're used to listening to. Because, you know, a little variety. That's one of the reasons I like live albums is because then you really get to see an artist's metal. You know, there's no net. There's no... Well, 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 let's... Well, hold on, hold on. There's a lot of live records that are overdubbed. And... Absolutely. But even so, you still get a sense of what they're like, especially if it's a bootlegged kind of uh, thing. And that's generally what these things are. These aren't... Um, when you get the live stuff, it really seems like uh, it hasn't been doctored too much. It's been you know, EQ'd and compressed and things like that, whatever they need to do as far as mixing. But it doesn't sound like they've added extra music and things like that. I think that would spoil it, actually. They're just going to create a fabricated live performance. Well, there's a, there's a famous, there, there is a famous example of a live album that was doctored terribly. It was the Grateful Dead's Europe 72. They did all sorts of overdubs. And, and it's really not one of the records that Deadheads turned to. Um, particularly since they released a box set, a deluxe edition of all the Europe 72 concerts. And that wasn't just a deluxe edition of a three LP set. That was 73 discs. That was a, a slightly different And concept. there were no overdubs. There were no, they didn't go back and doctor. Absolutely not. No, no, no. They did remix it and remaster it. Jeffrey Norman, who was a guest on the show, did the remastering. And the sound is quite good, though he did point out in the interview we did with him on the show that he was rushed. And he didn't have as much time that he would have wanted. We need 50 CDs from you, like, by Tuesday. Is that okay? <laughs> but deluxe editions are interesting. So Rhino Records is, like, the best label for deluxe editions. And they have turned this into an art form. They get all these old bands. Bands they know that are still selling some back catalog, but have a fan base that are sort of our age, because younger fans are less likely to buy these. And they repackage things, and sometimes it's remastered and sometimes it's not. Often you get live tracks and sometimes you get others. And, you know, with some of these sets, there's interesting things. The Derudy column, it's a collection of additional stuff. It's two live recordings. 
but some of them, it really is all the dribs and drabs. And, you know, how many times do you want to hear a demo version of a song? You might listen to it once. It's, it's quaint to hear the first version of, you know, someone playing this song on acoustic guitar while their friends are on the other side of the room smoking joints or whatever. But there's not a lot of musicality in that. I think some of the fun ones, one of my, one of my favorite demos is the uh, Dylan one that was on uh, Highway 61, the original version of Like a Rolling Stone, which isn't at all like the one that was eventually recorded. That's kind of fun. And I remember when that came out, that was kind of exciting because you actually saw the difference between you know, what he thought it should sound like and then what it eventually came together as. And that's sort of fun. But demos for the sake of demos, I, I don't think so. Well, the Dylan is a good example. It was the Bootleg Series Volume 12, The Cutting Edge, 1965 to 1966. And this was released in 2015. Do you notice there's a numerical relationship between 1965 and 2015? In European copyright law, a performance is only copyright for 50 years. And so Sony has been releasing what they call copyright collections of Dylan music for a number of years to make sure they get everything copyrighted before it hits the 50-year period. A lot of these things were not released publicly. They would make maybe 100 copies on LP and sell them on Record Store Day, which makes them into like the most exclusive Dylan records. But for this one, what was interesting is the scale of this set, 18 discs and everything he recorded in 65 and 66. And as you said, you hear the song developing and you hear a lot of songs where he's playing, let's say, a solo acoustic version to show people what it's going to sound like. And then the band comes in and then it cuts off and then they do it again. And, you know, a, a lot of it is incomplete false starts where the band starts and then they just kind of all go off on different key signatures. There's something about the six or eight different takes of Desolation Row. Some of them are extraordinary, but some after a while, you don't listen to this over and over. You, you don't listen to, I don't know, let's pick on disc two. It takes a lot to laugh. It takes a train to cry. There's four versions. One's complete. One's an alternate version One's incomplete and one's a remake complete. It's like, okay, enough. I remember when these sorts of albums started coming out, for instance, I remember early Beatles stuff. Whenever they released anything from the studio that was an unused take or something, that was that got written about in Rolling Stone, for goodness sake. But one of the first albums I bought that was like one of these deluxe editions, I don't think they called them that, was Derek and the Dominoes. They released um, a, a special edition which had alternate takes. I think that's all they were. There weren't was any Was that like, the one where they had Layla in increasingly slowed down versions to make it as long as possible? <laughs> no. It, or is that the Brian Eno mix? It didn't have that. But it had like alternative takes of like tell the truth and things like that where they played it slower or faster or whatever. And, you know, that was pretty exciting. Uh, and the Beatles stuff too, I think, was pretty exciting too because you heard so little of their output. You know, they were only around for so long. So anything that was the least bit interesting from the studio, people just jumped on. Uh, nowadays, it's not so hard to find that stuff on YouTube. But for a long time, anything else out of the studio was a very unusual thing. Most people just never heard any of that stuff un unless you were a bootlegger. And you could get bootlegs. And, and there were there were bootlegs of a number of things. The Basement Tapes is a good example that Bob Dylan recorded with the band. That was probably the first really big bootleg and that convinced Sony to release, well, they released two two CDs worth, I think, in the normal edition. Of course, there was a deluxe edition of the Basement Tapes. In fact, it was Bootleg Series Volume 11, so just before the other one. 
It has a total of six discs, and I listened to them all once. Um, I listened to some of the songs more than once, and, you know, I've kind of rated the ones that I really like four or five stars so I can listen to them again, but there's more mythology in the Basement Tapes, and they had a great time, and you can tell it, but it's not really... I mean, there's some great songs. I mean, I'm looking here. Um, Tears of Rage is a classic. Quinn the Eskimo, which became a really popular song. They do Will the Circle Be Unmoved. They do Johnny Cash's Big River. They do a lot of Johnny Cash songs mm. and country songs like that. And and it's fun to listen to. Once. Once. Yeah. Once. Um, interestingly, the Zappa Family Trust, a number of years ago, started putting out a series called Beat the Boots, which are essentially their official release of several bootlegged albums that have been floating around for years, and they finally officially released them. And Frank also did something. Uh, he released a series of albums called You Can't Do That on Stage Anymore, and these were also a bunch of live recordings. And I can listen to them once or twice, and there are some standout um, disc collections, but some of them just aren't really worth listening to because they sound like a lot of other things. But even so, the legality of, of, of getting this stuff out and making sure that, you know, the proper people got paid for it uh, was the impetus for that. They just wanted to make sure that, you know, people were getting the real deal and, and Zappa endorsed uh, discs and, and product. Not all deluxe editions are of old recordings because there are plenty of deluxe editions of new records. And this is a way to sell records rather than people streaming them. You could probably find pretty much every big name pop and rock artist these days having at least one deluxe edition. But one that I noticed was Brian Eno's Music for Installations, which came out early this year, March, I think. There is a bespoke, high concept, six CD box set deluxe edition version. So what's on that? Well, it's got six CDs to start with, and it's got a bespoke box. Oh. And bespoke boxes are pretty cool. I think the main difference is it's got a book with a bunch of essays and things like that. Uh, it's it's a plexiglass box as well. Oh. Now, I've, I've bought a couple of the more expensive Eno records, but I wasn't going to spend 350 or 330 pounds on this. Let me, i got to check the price to be Does sure. Does the box revolve and have lights and move uh, generatively and, uh, you know, have uh, uh, interesting... Does it do anything? It should, shouldn't it? Yeah. It should. What's interesting, though, is this is now down to 200 pounds on Amazon UK, so 40% off the initial price. So not many people fell for it. And I don't know... I don't... This, this must have been a limited edition in some way. I was just going to ask that because uh, why the price drop, you know, if it wasn't limited? This is a numbered limited edition. I'm trying to find what the limitation is here, and it's not clear. You mean what the number of them that they made? Yes, the, the limitation is the number in the edition. That's, that's the term that's used. That's a term of art. I can't see it, but it is... A limited edition and numbered Super Deluxe Edition 6 CD in a uniquely crafted bespoke work of art in itself, housed in a rigid 12 by 10 box, 6 CDs. How many would you would you think that they would have made in a situation like this? A thousand? Ten thousand? Well, here's a, here's a good example. The Grateful Dead's Dave's Pick series is 15,000, and they just released a box set of, they're calling it Pacific Northwest 7374. They're grouping a bunch of concerts from a geographical area. And I believe there's 15,000 of that. And these are really fancy editions with really nice-looking boxes and books and but, things. But it's not something you haven't heard already or not something that isn't already available as a 
as an addition. Oh, the dead stuff is not already available. No. Oh, it's not. I mean, okay. it, it, it's tape traders may have some of these, but these the, when they release these sets, they never include something they've previously released officially. The Eno is mostly unreleased. It is the music that was used at installations. There are a few tracks that are, have different names, but are very similar to previously released tracks. But the idea there is to get the people who not only want CDs, but have the money to buy the the version that other people don't buy, and because that makes them better, the bigger fans and all that. Do they increase in value? Is this the sort of thing that could increase in value? Is this an investment that someone would make, 350 for you know for it now and 800 later? Well, I'll tell you, at 200 pounds, I am tempted because Eno's own shop is selling it for 350, whereas Amazon has it for 200. Yes, these are investments. There are collectors. I'll tell you the truth. I recently sold my Europe 72 box set. I'm starting to downsize. I need to make room. I think I paid, I think it was $400. So I paid like 450 euros altogether, and I sold it for about 925 pounds, minus eBay's cut. So, but even so, you virtually doubled it. Yeah, I doubled it. 10 years, double your money. Exactly. It's better than the stock market. Well, stock market's doing pretty good, but uh, I, I do buy things like that in some cases to resell them down the line, you know, not being in too much of a hurry. It depends on the limitation. If there were only 7,200 of the Europe 72 set, in fact, the, the, the great story about that is the dead never thought that they would sell this many. And when they first put it on sale, they had a caveat saying, okay, if we don't sell them all, we won't be able to afford it. First thing was the website went down for like two days because there was so much demand. And then they finally sold out within 48 hours. That's funny. They picked, I'm assuming they picked 7,200 because 72. 72. So they picked an arbitrarily, but somewhat safe number to begin with because, I mean, I would have gone with 10,000. Well, it was the first time they'd released anything that expensive. Previous to that, it was all two and three disc sets. This was the first real big, they, they had no idea. And they were being very cautious and, and it's good that they were. But now they do 15,000 of those things. So that sort of thing is really a collector's item, you know, having the, the having the version that no one else has. But the, the the Fleetwood Mac is just, you know, let's find all the scraps on the floor and throw them together. And, you know, they won't be able to do that again. No, <laughs> no, they can't. There have probably been countless reissues of Fleetwood Mac's rumors, and they've been remastered, and maybe they've had a couple of bonus tracks. And But, but you get to a point where you've pretty much used up everything you have and where do they go next right there's only so much stuff the way they record things now not everything is saved and um you know it's all digital so it's not like you know they can find old tapes or something like that uh so i guess it has a lot to do with you know how how seminally the the how well regarded the band or the artist is and, you know, their their popularity, their longevity. Yeah, how popular it is. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of interesting if you look at jazz recordings. and jazz recordings, you often have outtakes and alternate versions, which make sense because they go into the studio and they're improvising. And, well, they pick the best version that they have. So if you look at um, Miles Davis's Kind of Blue, you got the five tracks that everyone knows, and then you've got... Flamenco Sketch's alternate take, which was previously released on a CD version as a bonus track. And then you've got Freddie Freeloader Studio Sequence 1, Freddie Freeloader False Start, Freddie Freeloader Studio Sequence 2, Flamenco Sketch's Studio Sequence 1, and then, you know, there's an alternate take, and then there's a live track, and it's 
what, what bothers me about this is that it's just not interesting enough. I mean, you've got to be really obsessive to really want to listen to these things more than once. And and when you listen to them and with the false starts and all that, it's like, okay. Doesn't tell you much. Well, no. Now, of course, a lot of Miles Davis fans will tell you, no, what's interesting here is to hear Miles talking in between the takes. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess for some people that is truly interesting. Well, like I said earlier about the Beatles, it was always exciting to hear, you know, the takes and hear the goofy things they used to say. And I can definitely say, you know, Miles didn't talk a lot. So <laughs> any uh, any recording of his voice would be interesting. <laughs> so there's a box set that Yes released and interestingly recorded in 1972. This is when they recorded the music for their three LP set called Yes Songs, which we've discussed in the past. Great live album. It was not the same recordings as the movie Yes songs, but it was some of the same songs. So they released a box set of the seven concerts they recorded from October 31st to November 20th, from which they picked the songs that they used in the record and the movie. And presumably there were other concerts that they didn't record and they didn't use anything. This is part of a normal tour, right? I'm just thinking, Right. these are, so if the song was represented on the original album, we found the original concert, and here's the whole concert. No, these are the ones that they recorded. These are the ones that they recorded in planning for the album. You know, back in the day, it cost a lot to pull up one of those trucks, run all the cables in, you know, with the 64 track or, or probably 16 track at the time, recording thing and run the cables in, and that was relatively expensive. Now, it, it, they just run it off the soundboard because they're recording everything digitally. So when this came out, the reviews were really interesting. Oh, it sounds really great. It's remastered and all this. And I started listening to some of it. It's like, well, this version sounds exactly like that version. Then I saw on the forums, the fans were saying, yeah, they sound like, but it's the banter between the songs that makes the difference. <laughs> any recording I've seen of Yes, I mean, Yours is No Disgrace sounds like any other Yours is No Disgrace. Yeah. Um, so, But I mean, I get it. Several of my favorite live albums. Um the Who Live at Leeds and Humble Pie's uh, Rockin' the Fillmore have had multiple deluxe editions over the years. And as I've told before, there was the original Live at Leeds, which was just a disc. It just had like five songs on it. Then when the CD came out, they said, hey, we can add some more. So they did that. Then another version came out with the full concert. Then the next version came out with the two nights that they were in Leeds. And then another collection came out with the two nights at Leeds and two nights in Hull the week before. And essentially you get the same songs that they're playing, a little different. The stage banter, of course, is compelling, I suppose. But that's not, I mean, I've, I haven't even listened to all of that stuff. Same thing with the Humble Pie <laughs> stuff. They recorded uh, four shows in two nights at the Fillmore. And you can hear the songs develop, and if you're a Humble Pie fan, I guess it's great, but some of the versions stink. I mean, they are just, some of the songs, they're just bad. The harmonies are bad. The lead guitar playing, Peter Frampton, is terrible. But you can see that they're trying to put these arrangements together. So it's like the it's like the studio stuff. It's like, well, it's interesting because, you know, yesterday they did it like this, and today they did it like that. Well, Dylan's a good example. When you when you hear his live music over time, not in any given tour, you hear how different one song is from another. And for real Dylanologists, that's interesting. But I think for most people, they want to hear the good stuff. And there's a reason why the Who picked certain songs to be on the album over others that weren't as good. And see, that's one of the problems with these things. You've, you've set a high bar with the original record, and every new edition lowers that bar more and more 
to the point that that the globality of the six CD set is maybe only three stars because there's really only one record that's worth listening to. Right, and that's the original, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the one the one that you had back in the day that you really didn't need to replace. Right. They've been doing some stuff recently in classical music that's somewhat interesting. And while these aren't deluxe editions, there are limited editions, and I have a number of things that came out as limited editions, maybe fifteen or twenty thousand. Big box sets, it, it's really not commercially viable for them to make more or to reprint them. But one thing that they've been doing recently, I think I mentioned the Mozart 225 set uh, a number of months ago, is that now that there's so much concentration in the music business, they're no longer required to have music from just a single record label. Universal owns the majority of the big classical record labels, Deutsche Grammophon, Philips, and Decca. And they have enough power to even go to smaller labels and say, we want to license your recordings of these to put on this box set. So people who are collectors and who are interested in a wide range of recordings can access things, many of which are out of print, that you couldn't get 10 or 15 years ago. It was always limited to a single label. And that, that in some ways is an improvement. Technically, these aren't necessarily deluxe editions. They're just editions that are taking advantage of the passage of time and, and the decreasing value of the catalog over time as well. But that, I would say, for the consumer is, is a little bit better. The decreasing value for the consumer is an interesting way of talking a lot about this. And, and you also talked about lowering the bar. It's like a lot of this stuff is are the dregs of, of, the, of the studio. I wouldn't say that for the classical stuff that I no. just talked about. and. I would say it, for instance, for the Miles Davis banter between the songs. The, the seven Yes concerts all sound great, but you only need one to appreciate that tour. You know, we talk about filler as being bad songs to fill out an album that has three hits on it, but now we're in filler that has, you know, the same stuff on six more discs to fill out a 10-disc set. Right, and 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 the marketing to try to make it sound like it's extra special, which it isn't real. I mean, deluxe. <laughs> it's a you know the light this is what it's supposed to uh this is you know extra special and it's it's really not extra special it's kind of like like you said it's like the inverse of extra special which for collectors is uh is a fine thing but uh, for the average consumer i don't think so well there's a box set of sergeant pepper in the mix that came out what was it last year early this year yeah Last year. It's currently going for 100 pounds. And what does it have? It has the original version. It has the remix. It's got six discs, it looks like. I guess that's not really lowering the bar, but in many ways, why? What's going on? And so let's see. It looks like there's a DVD. And ah, uh, yes. So another thing they put in the deluxe editions is the surround sound mixes. Let's remember those, the 5.1 DVD audio or whatever. Sure. For all your friends who don't have surround sound systems anymore. Right. And, oh, and, and you mentioned that, DVDs. I mean, so there's there could be video, there could be documentaries, there could be found film footage and things like that. Sometimes that can be special. All right, so we have to work on our deluxe edition of this podcast episode. We'll have to figure out how to monetize this. Maybe we can have our pre-show and post-show outtakes. And we'll leave this part in. <laughs> yes, we we'll have to leave this part in so our it. listeners know that we're going to do it. Right. Well, yeah, but that, okay, but that that's sort of self-referential then, isn't it? That gets a little bit confusing. Do you want me to do some some fancy mic banter? How about this? Wait a minute. Let me, let, me, I know, let me put this over here now. This is much more comfortable. All right, can you hear me now, Yes, Kirk? let's check the positioning of the microphones. <laughs> that's really important before we start. We always have to check our levels and our positioning and... 
we always have this pre-show discussion, then we have the post-show discussion, then we have everything that Doug edits out. Maybe today what you should do is not edit out all the bad stuff and leave it just raw. We'll see if people like that. Take three. It's now time for our next tracks. Kirk, what have you got this week? For my next track, I'm going to pick some Bob Dylan. In the show, I talked about two installments of the Bootleg series, Volumes 11 and 12, and Volume 13 came out last November. It's called Trouble No More, 1979 to 1981. And I bought the deluxe edition. I admit it. I think seven CDs and a DVD. And I put it aside. And I didn't listen to anything. I did look at the DVD, which has a concert from the period. But this is Dylan's Born Again period. And it's, it's not my favorite Bob Dylan. It covers the album Slow Train Coming, Saved, and Shot of Love, which... Let's face it, there are some great songs on this. Slow Train, Gotta Serve Somebody, The Groom's Still Waiting at the Altar, Every Grain of Sand. I mean, there are some really good songs, but I just didn't want to listen to it because eh, it was like Dylan was just in a bad place then. Well, about a week ago, I pulled it out and I started listening to it and I was quite impressed. I was impressed because there are a lot of great songs and there are a bunch of lemons too, but his band was really tight. I didn't realize that his live band back then was really tight great backup singers, great harmonies. And when he was doing the older songs, like there's a June 27, 1981 concert at Earl's Court in London, Like a Rolling Stone, Maggie's Farm, Girl from the North Country, Ballad of a Thin Man, they have really interesting arrangements. And of course, I mentioned earlier, you know, Dylan throughout his career, he changes the arrangements of his songs, changes the tempo and all that. I was wrong to not listen to this. I mean, there's a lot of music on here that I don't really care for, but what I do like is surprisingly good, and it's better than I thought. I mean, unless you're a hardcore Dylanologist who has everything, that this is a period that you sort of, this is like the blackout in your Dylan history. In fact, I remember at the time when I was living in New York, so he hadn't toured for many years, and then he came back with this stuff. I think 78 was the first time he toured in Madison Square Garden. I didn't even think about getting tickets to see Dylan. No one wanted to see Dylan in this period. So I'm a little bit disappointed that I missed out on this at the time. Although the, the concerts that you can find online or, you know, bootlegs exist of him giving sermons between songs, that's a little bit cringeworthy. But there's some great stuff on this set. There's a deluxe version with nine discs and there's a four LP and there's a two disc CD and there's all sorts of versions of it, which, you know, lately that's what they do. But check out some of it, or even, you know, on your streaming service. So, Bootleg Series Volume 13, Trouble No More. Doug? I don't normally frequent YouTube, and I understand a lot of people do go to YouTube to get a lot of their music. I will occasionally go there because there's something of interest that's only available on YouTube, and I have discovered something very unusual and unique. It's called The Reflex. It's He has a channel of music remixes that he's done, not your basic remixes. I mean, you, I'm sure you're all familiar with mashups and things like that where DJs take songs and mix them up and take some instrumental parts and things like that. Well, Reflex Revision is a remix entirely done from the original multitracks or stems, no sound or instrument added unless specified. Now, that seems like a fairly broad definition of what a, a decent remix would be. But this guy, what makes him so special is he has stripped a lot of these great R&B songs down and kept the funk, if not made them more funky. And the finest thing I've heard him do is a version of Stevie Wonder's I Wish. Absolutely toe-tapping. You cannot sit still 
while that song, while this remix is playing. He also remixes a few Michael Jackson songs, Jackson 5 songs. There's a remix revision of Creedence Clearwater Revival's Heard It Through the Grapevine. I haven't heard that one yet. I'm looking forward to it. But anyway, like I said, the great thing about these songs is that the funk is still there. They're not one of these sloppy remixes. It's so clean. Each one is just a little gem. As someone commented on the page, you've taken a masterpiece and made a masterpiece. They really are delightful pieces, especially if you know the original one. I don't know how many times I've heard Stevie Wonder's I Wish on the radio, but hearing this version, in this particular song, he was able to get all the clavinet parts and you know, separate them. And you can hear the different funk parts of it. I could go on and on about how great this stuff is all day. Check it out. The Reflex Revision. I'll have a link to his channel page in the show notes. And it's my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.